Matthew 15. We'll start in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, what would we get, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them. And started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces. Seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men. Besides women and children. And sending away the crowds. Jesus got into the boat. And came to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word that reveals who you are and who we are and what we need. Father, we thank you for your provision of the first and foremost bread from heaven, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we pray that you will help us to depend upon him and seek him and trust him and enjoy him and be satisfied with him. Thank you, Father, for bringing us today. Thank you for getting us here, and thank you for giving us a revelation of yourself in the word. Help me, Lord, now as I preach your word, that I be accurate and honor you with everything that I say and do. I'm here, Lord. I need you. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Very thankful that all of you are with us today, and hope you're encouraged in the worship, I was. Wasn't that encouraging? Well, last week we got the revelation of our need of Christ and who we are. This week we get the revelation of the glory of Christ and how he loves us and we can trust him. Last week we talked about humble commitment to the Lord and how important that is and that our dependence upon him and our seeking him must be our priority. Last week we were shown a, a startling example of how we should view ourselves in light of our identity, who we really are, and Christ's identity. The Canaanite woman's humility was our example. So 
how should we view ourselves? How should we view ourselves in light of the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ? How should we see ourselves? Answer, ultimately, in small form, we must have a low view of self. A low view of self. Again, you've heard this uh, many, many times that we can't love people until you love yourself. You ever heard that one before? <laughs> Jesus is not saying you need to love yourself more. He says that's a given. You love yourself plenty. You need to love others as much as you already love yourself. That's the point of that passage. The problem is is that we love ourselves way too much. And we think way too much of ourselves than we should. We should have a low view of ourselves. Boy, that really would go over real well with the self-image people, right? Now, this doesn't mean that we should have a morbid self-obsession with woe is me. I'm so horrible can't walk by a mirror anymore because I'm disgusted with how I look. The fact of the matter is, is that often that's just another veiled form of pride also. Feeling sorry for yourself and thinking bad. Oh, woe is me. Look at me. I'm so mistreated. I'm so horrible. I'm so ugly. That can be sin too. We need a full awareness of our unworthiness in light of the glory of Christ, though. We need to have an accurate view of ourselves. How does, I, how does the prophet Isaiah see himself when he sees the Lord? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. That's the kind of view we should have of ourselves, a low view of ourselves. When the lady, the Canaanite lady, was ignored, she didn't give up, though, did she? She didn't get angry. She didn't think she was worthy of being heard first time, right away, all the time. You better listen to me. You better pay attention to me. She didn't think that way. The world didn't revolve around her. She knew it. She knew Christ Jesus was the Messiah for Israel, and she understood that. She understood that the world wasn't all about her and her problems. She also didn't take an offense when she was identified as not one of the children of Israel. She just kept humbly asking for help for her daughter. Then the woman, in an incomprehensible way, we saw last week, affirms her identity as a dog, designing scraps from her master's table. Anybody else go through this week thinking, I'm a dog, I'm a dog, I'm a dog? Hopefully. This lady humbly sought the Lord knowing her identity and the Lord's true identity. Great faith, beloved Great faith is founded upon a humble heart attitude towards the Lord. That's where great faith comes from. If you think the world revolves around you, then you're not going to have great faith. If you think you're worthy of salvation, you're not going to have great faith. If you think you're worthy of being the elect, you're not going to have great faith. Notice Jesus, though, his description of her in Matthew 15, 28. I know this is contrary to anything the world says, but this is what the Bible says. Look at Matthew 15, 28. In 15, 28, then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Notice that Jesus has an emotional response here. That, oh, that, that the beginning there, oh, woman, your faith is great. It's, 
It's as if he almost groans, like, wow, whoa, whoa, amazing. So what attitudes are associated here with this woman's great faith? Because he calls her, he says, oh, woman, your faith is great, large, enormous, great faith. Well, we've seen it's the humility of this lady, her perseverance, her dependence, her persistence, her worship, right? She bowed low when she was ignored, when it was said, I'm not supposed to, I'm here for the lost children of the tribe of Israel from Israel. She bows low and worships him as the Messiah. One commentator summarized the lady well. He stated, she knew, quote, she knew deep within herself that Jesus alone could help her daughter. Because she believed this so intensely, even in the face of being ignored and then refused, she kept asking. This was faith. Total commitment to the object of faith, even when outward facts did not appear agreeable. That's great. It's truth. This was faith. Total commitment to the object of faith, even when outward facts did not appear agreeable. That's faith. The Canaanite woman was not into arguing for her value or her worthiness. She just kept asking and seeking Jesus. She believed in him. She knew he alone could rescue her daughter. And she had great faith. So we too must have this low view of ourselves in light of the glory of our Lord. Next we learned how we should view the Lord in light of the identity of the Lord Jesus. We should have a high view of him, a high view of the Lord. Jesus was the son of David, the promised Messiah of Israel. He was the Lord incarnate. He was the one who is merciful and kind. He is the master over the children of Israel and his dogs. Jesus is both the righteous Lord and the compassionate Savior. We are the Gentile dogs that God has graciously included in his plan. What a glorious truth that is. What a good Savior he is. That he recognizes this lady and then heals this lady, shows he is a beautiful Savior, a wonderful counselor. This lady had a proper understanding of Jesus, didn't she? She knew who he was. She understood he was sovereign over the demonic world. He was the promised Messiah of Israel. He was the first there. He was first there for the Israelites, but his grace and compassion was deep. It was a deep well. And he was worth pursuing in her greatest time of need. He loved the dogs too. <laughs> Isn't that great news? We see the See, in the epistles, after Jesus had died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, we are not only the master's dogs, beloved, we are actually his adopted children. This is amazing truth. We have been grafted into his family because of his great love for us. Last week you felt a little low. Today I'm going to make you feel really great about the glory of Christ and how much he loves us. Oh, what a great truth this is. We who believe in Jesus are forever his joint heirs. For all who repent and believe in Jesus, even the unclean Gentiles become heirs also with Christ. Martin Luther called us this. He put it this way. He said we're sinner saints, right? I would suggest a new line for us. I would add, canine heirs. Canine heirs. I'm not just a dog. I'm an adopted child of God. What a love. This is the love that God displayed to this Canaanite woman. 
as she humbly cried out for mercy, he demonstrated his love for her. Jesus' love shown towards the lady was a preview of his love towards Gentiles at the cross, right? It was a preview. That little event there was a preview of the cross. Because at the cross, remember, it was there that all of our sins were paid for. And all of us dogs and of all of us unclean sinners. It is there that He paid for our sin. What a glorious God. And do you, let me ask you a question. Do you approach this Christ crucified and resurrected? Do you approach Him going, yep, I'm worthy of the cross? None of us do that, do we? We all crawl to the cross, don't we? We crawl there saying, I'm not worthy for you to die in my place. I'm worthy of the judgment. I'm not worthy of a Savior who would die for me. If you understand this, your life is changed. You think totally different. God is just, isn't he? And he's also gracious and loving. Jesus' love is shown here. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This preview of Jesus' love for the Canaanite woman, it was a preview of the love that was going to be demonstrated to all of us who believe, even the Gentiles. As we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Paul talking, Therefore remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision. Or you could say the dogs by the so-called clean children. Same concept. Which is performed in hands by human hands. by In the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from God from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? This is the Gentile woman just coming up. She's just saying, that's me, that's me, I'm that, yeah. And Jesus says, yep, you're not, you're not one of us. You're not one of the children. She says, yeah, but I'm a dog. Can I just have some scraps? But now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that in himself we might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both to in one body to God through the cross by having been put to death or by having put to death the enmity what's the point what happens with the Canaanite woman is just a preview of what Jesus is going to do in the future it's a small glimpse of what he's going to do he's going to give grace and mercy and he did through the cross through the resurrection through the new life he then made it possible for Jews and Gentiles both to be reconciled to God. The clean needed to be reconciled to God too, didn't they? The professing clean. We all do. And Christ did it. Today we see this compassionate Savior on full display. Go back to Matthew chapter 15. We need to We need to be like this Canaanite woman, humbly committed to the Lord as a canine heir. Now, in our passage today, Jesus leaves the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon for a new area. After affirming this lady's great faith in the Tyre and Sidon region, he then moves to a new area. 
Matthew 15 and Mark 7 describe the change of the scenery. Actually, Mark 7 is where I want you to look. You can look at this passage. This is a parallel passage. I put them both up there on the board for you or on the projector for you to see. Again, Jesus, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Once Jesus arrived in the region of Decapolis, notice Matthew 15, 29, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. So where in the world is Decapolis? Where is Decapolis? It's down here. It's down here. Okay, where's Tyre and Sidon? It's up here. Where are all the Jewish people? Where did they most of the, most of them live? Well, down here is Jerusalem, down there. And then all of, oh, whoa, whoa, don't you love it when that happens? Okay. Down here, most of this area here is the Jewish areas, like Nazareth, I think is right there. I can't really see it. It's one of these. And then this is where he would be, where he would have walked on the sea, right here. And in this area is Capernaum and all the areas that he had spent most of his time with. Okay? I'm circling. Are y'all seeing the circling? I had to do it that way because otherwise I'd shake. Like, so it's in here. Okay? This is where they're at, most of the Jewish people. Right? So what area was this? Yeah, Tyre and Sidon and it's Gentile area up here. Okay? Gentile area. And what's this area down here? Decapolis. And what is that? It's a Gentile area. It's a Gentile area. It's shocking when you read it on the page. Very interesting. Wait. So he goes from a Gentile area, and it says he traveled up through Sidon and over and down to Decapolis. So we don't know exactly how he went. But he went and then down along the Sea of Galilee. So he's down here. Now, why would that be important? This is one of those geography things that you've got to know. You need to understand in order to understand the passage. And i got to admit, I have to confess to you, that I never read this right until this week. I, I Honestly, I thought the 4,000 that were fed and the people that he healed there were Jewish. I was completely convinced of it. I thought it. I was completely convinced of it. Until I studied and found out that Decapolis was all Jew, or was all Gentile, predominantly Gentile. And that the Jews stayed on this side, on the west side of the lake, and the Gentiles stayed on the east side of the lake. Very important. And if you read Matthew's account, you might say, well, it doesn't say anything about the east side of the lake. But Mark's account does. Mark's account says that it's Decapolis, which is where it was. That's important. So how do we know that Matthew is saying the same thing as Mark? Answer, because they don't contradict. They do harmonize perfectly. And second, there's one little hint in our passage in Matthew. One little hint. Look at it in verse 31. But it's a pretty important hint. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. They glorified the God of Israel. Hmm. Wouldn't it be they glorified their God? Or they glorified God? I believe this is directly pointing to the idea that these Gentiles were pointing to the God of Israel. The Israel's people. It's God. That's the point. And this whole section was showing us what? The Pharisees in 15 had come to him, right? And before that, they had rejected him. Why? They had said that he was doing miracles by Beelzebul. And then they were accusing him and saying, your disciples are unclean. They don't wash their hands before they eat. And so what is, what is Jesus doing? He's avoiding them. He's staying away from them as an act of judgment. Very interesting. So why does he go to Decapolis? I think ultimately all of this is preview, preview, 
preview, showing the disciples what their ministry is going to be about. Listen, beloved. How does Matthew 28 end? Go over there to Matthew 28 real quick. Oh, y'all know these verses. Everybody's got this memorized, don't you? Matthew 28. What happens in Matthew 28? Verse 19. After Jesus had resurrected, had been raised from the dead and he was resurrected, he then comes to them on the mountain and he says these things up in Galilee, by the way, up in Galilee area, probably up here. My guess is up in this area. I haven't studied this one yet completely. And he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples of what? All nations. I think ultimately Jesus here in Matthew 15 has given them a preview of what their ministry is in the future. He's basically saying, look, I just heal this one lady. This is how you treat them. This is how you love them. Point them to me. Because he did, oh, great woman of great faith, and healed them. Then he goes around, and what's he do? He heals a bunch of Gentiles. So Jesus went from the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This is crucial to understand. Up until this point, Jesus had healed possibly only a few Gentiles, maybe three, four, max. Then the floodgates begin to open up. He starts healing Gentiles. Remember, he had healed the uh, the the uh, centurion's servant, remember? Also the demonic possessed two men in the garrison, which is where, by the way? It's right up here where he healed them. The demoniac, you remember? Legion. Okay, so he's healed them. Then he healed this ladies. Goes around to the backside, goes down to Decapolis, and many come to him. Showing his great love for the nations, even the Gentiles. Jesus had come to help the lost children from the tribe of Israel. First, yes, he had been offered to them. But as we have seen, the children of Israel, especially the leadership of the Jewish people, had rejected their own Messiah. They had accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. They had accused him of breaking the man-made traditions of their religion. And he had left. In John chapter 6, which happens most likely after the feeding of the 5,000, right after the feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, Jesus has a great following of Jewish disciples. And what does he tell to the Jewish disciples? This is before this. What does he tell them? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What happens? They leave. They couldn't handle it. They didn't understand him. He was speaking of total commitment to him, but instead they were what? They thought cannibalism or something? Can't understand this. These things are too complicated for me. What was the problem? The problem was their hearts. They didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear, spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. And they were there just to get their bellies fed, remember? Or they wanted what? We know from John's account... That they said what? It says that they tried to force him to be king. Make him king. They didn't want him done his way. They wanted it done their way. And so what does Jesus do? He withdraws. They couldn't understand his requirements to eat his flesh and drink his blood and be totally committed to him. So only a few stay. And I love Peter's words, right? Peter's words is a remnant. He says, where else do we go? You're going to leave me too, Jesus says. And Peter says, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. Can't go anywhere else. 
So when Jesus secludes himself to the Gentile areas, instead of solitude, the Gentiles start coming to the Messiah of Israel. They believed in him, and they understood he was their hope also. So Matthew's gospel shows how hostility towards Jesus from the Jewish people, mostly their Jewish or their leaders, grows. It's showing how that's growing. But in the process of their growing hatred, guess what starts to be shown? Their hatred grows, showing God's sovereign plan to then save a bunch of Gentiles. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Wow. Do you see how amazing this is? When y'all look at, and and if y'all are anything like me, you interpret events as you see them and you say, okay, this person's winning and this person's losing. Right? This person's the winner and this person's the loser. This one's the... And we interpret it, but we don't see that God is sovereignly working in all these things. If papers were being written, right, during this time of Jesus writing it, you know what the headlines would be? Jesus is a false messiah. Jesus casts out demons by the devil. That's what they would be. In the Jerusalem times of the day, it would be the Pharisees say this guy is wicked. He's being rejected by everybody. Everybody's leaving. He said he wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. <laughs> That's the way it would be. But in fact, what's happening? Gentiles come to them. And he starts healing Gentiles. What do you think the Pharisees say to that? See? Unclean people are getting healed. Unclean pagans are getting healed. It's got to be Satan. Hmm. You interpret the events. If you don't know your Bible, you've missed it all. And yet God is working his magical, or magical, mysterious, beautiful, amazing plan right out in front of us <laughs> as we read through this. Our passage today is one big display of Jesus' unconditional love towards Gentiles. These are good news. This is good news. The rest of the chapter breaks down into two main sections. We have first verses 29 to 31 or 30 and 31. Jesus compassionately heals the crowd of Gentiles. And then second, there will be Jesus compassionately feeds the hungry. Let's look at these two events and you'll see how it unfolds and how it develops this whole idea. We see here the depth of first. We see the depth of his compassion to heal even the Gentiles. In verse 29 or verse 30, it states, And the large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus demonstrates in this passage his compassion to the large crowd of Gentiles who had sought help from him. What a good God, right? What a gracious Lord. The healings were various in kinds and number amounts in this Gentile land. They were bringing Jesus those who were lame, crippled. What is lame and crippled? Those were the words that were covered to talk about physical disabilities of Jesus' day. They could have included anything from paralytics to birth defects to debilitating diseases. These were the crippled, the lame, the the people of the Decapolis that were Gentiles that were hurting. The blind. The blind were obviously those who couldn't see or were so blind that they couldn't function in the world. Then there's the mute. The mute means that they couldn't talk. They were unable to communicate. And you understand that if somebody's mute, it's probably because they were deaf. That's why a lot of our deaf people can't talk 
to us. They use their hands. Why? Because when you can't hear, you can't form words. You can't even hear yourself to form vocabulary and, and pronunciations and things like that. So it's harder for them to do that. Basically, the mute were the deaf. And many other disabilities and ailments came to them. There was a great crowd of hurting people. Family and friends were carrying their relatives and friends and neighbors and laying them at his feet, at Jesus' feet, in order for Jesus to show them, or to heal them, rather. What does this show? This shows they have faith in that Messiah, don't they? In the Messiah of Israel. And they sought him to help them. And Jesus did what he was empowered to do. He healed them. Again, now the, what is this? Well, this is the development of the crumbs falling from the table. That's what's happening. More crumbs are feeding the dogs. That's what's happening here. This was a preview, again, of Jesus' ministry for the disciples as they would go out and they would do these same miracles, but ultimately point to his work, right? Notice the response of the crowd to Jesus' miraculous works. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. What does this mean? He marveled. They marveled. It means they literally worshipped. It's a neat Greek word. It means People were extraordinarily impressed and amazed by what was happening, what Jesus was doing. They realized who he was and how amazing he really is and how shocking it was that the Lord was doing these things. And it caused them to worship. So while the spiritual leaders of Israel were rejecting their Messiah, the Gentiles were being caused to worship the Messiah of Israel. And they glorified and made much of the God of Israel. This is once again a surprising turn of events, isn't it? First, the Seraphonician woman, the Canaanite woman, worshipped. Now a great crowd of 4,000 men and many, many more women and children were worshipping the God of Israel. This is like, wow! You just, if you were Jewish, this would be shocking. Startling. What? He's our Messiah. By the way, what was one of the accusations of the Pharisees down near the end? You're not going to the Gentiles, are you? See, this, this right here struck at the core of their problem, the heart of their problem, which was what? Pride. They took pride in being God's children. So when he, the Messiah, begins to heal Gentiles, unclean people, oh my! Anger only grows. Pride. But the Gentiles got it. Why? Because they knew that he was the God of Israel in the flesh and God was working and God was working in him. So why did they get it? Why did they get it? Why these Gentiles? The simple answer is what? Grace. Grace. We're back to it. God's unmerited favor. God had revealed himself to these Gentiles and now... He was being worshipped by them. Jesus went to the right side of the lake, not the west side of the lake. Why? Grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. And a preview of the gospel to spread. It is really important to understand that even this grace from the Messiah was like salt in the wounds for those religious leaders, the Jews. Not only was Jesus teaching his disciples, however, that it was okay to eat without washing their hands, he was saying, hey, even the Gentiles can embrace me and believe in me. The the disciples needed to know this, didn't they? How hard was it for the disciples to go out? (laughs) 
It was hard even after Acts when the Spirit was working in them. What does Jesus tell him? What does Jesus tell Peter? Go to Cornelius, and what does, what does he say? No, 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 no. I've never eaten anything like that. He saw the vision, right? Um, you want me to go into a house of a Gentile? Again, even the disciples needed to see that Jesus was working in the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would embrace him. What's really interesting, it's very gross. Read Mark 7's account of this. I know it's gross, but how does he heal the guy that was mute? He spits and puts his finger on the guy's tongue. I know you're like, ooh. Even us pig-eating Gentiles have a hard one with that, right? I think it's, 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 it's amazing. I think it points to the whole point. I don't think Jesus did it because there was some supernatural effect by touching the tongue. I think he knew the tongue was dirty in the minds of everybody, and he touches a tongue. you got to be kidding me, and he spits. That's the opposite of clean. But it's about what? The heart. It's the heart. And he was there to heal. He was there. Predominantly, it was more about the healing of the hearts, wasn't it? Than about these outward external things. These actions were training the disciples to go to all the nations and make disciples. Jesus is showing his disciples his love and his compassion reaches outside the borders of the promised land and outside the Jewish people. Notice next, Jesus displays the compassionate love in feeding the hungry. In verse 15, 31, 31, Jesus demonstrated his compassion by feeding the great multitude of his people before sending them away, his Gentile, the Gentile people, that is. In Matthew 15, 32 to 39, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? By the way, what is that? That's doubt. That right there is doubt. The disciples, you go from seeing great faith to back to the poor old disciples that are showing doubt. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do we have? Do you have? And they said... Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and giving, started giving them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. You know, the more I've thought on this, how intriguing this is to me. You know, I've often wondered, how can the disciples see Jesus feed 5,000 just men? He probably fed fed ten to 12,000 people totally with five loaves and two fish. How in the world in less than a month does he come, do they come to the very same spot and they don't get it? You know, I think, the more I think on this passage, the more I think about the context and all this, I think it plays into this Gentile theme. Say, why? Well, if you're a Jewish, would you be thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to feed these guys too. (laughs) No, because didn't he just say they only get the bread, the crumbs? They were paying attention they might have thought, nah, these aren't the top of the scale. They don't, they, they're not really righteous. He's already healing them. Why don't they just go home? Now, I don't know positive because it doesn't say all of that, but it's the narrative is pointing to this whole concept that he's looking outside. I wouldn't doubt that they were struggling with who they were talking to and who they were feeding. 
Do you understand? I think the same thing happens with Peter when he's told about Cornelius. I bet you he struggled with that. Either way, though, they should have seen that he could do it, right? And that he would do it. And that he was compassionate and gracious. The Lord's point here points to his heart for his people. He points to his heart for all people of the world. This is glorious truth, beloved. This is really good news. The disciples revealed their lack of faith, and we see this as an observation. And the one who had fed 5,000, they didn't see that he could just go ahead and do this. Third, the Lord once again showed his he was sovereign over the food supply, didn't he? He showed it. He could feed them all. And there doesn't appear to be a big awareness by the disciples of Jesus' great work here. They don't appear to even get it now. You know how I know? Because you read the next chapter and you'll see that. I don't think they get it. Not completely, at least. But the Gentiles appear to be getting it, even though the disciples were missing it. Why? I, again, believe it's religious blindness. Self-righteous blindness. Do I think the disciples were saved? Yes. Do I think they were converted? Yes. All but one of them specifically, right? Because Jesus says in John 13, all of you are clean except for one, right? But I think their view of Jesus was still low. They were slowly getting it, and their faith was growing, but they thought too much of themselves still. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read the Gospels and then I read the epistles, I'm like, is this the same guy? I mean, or Acts even. You're reading Acts, and you're like, is this the same guy as over here, Peter? Is this the same guy? So let me ask you a question. How many of you would like your first three and a half years to be recorded for everybody to see walking with Jesus? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope, none of us would, right? I think we all need to be careful of how we view the disciples in these events. Stay humble. Because after all, isn't it the humble heart is what is associated with great faith? That's what Jesus said. All too often we think way too high of ourselves still, don't we? All too often. Who's the hardest worker in your place at your job? Who's the best person at running your house? Who's the one that should be doing everything and is has it really all figured out? If your answer is yourself in any of those questions, you're vulnerable. We all need to be a lot more like the Canaanite woman, don't we? My sermons rise and fall based completely on the amount of spirit working in me. For apart from him, I can do nothing. Even my own abilities in studying the Greek and knowing all this stuff. That without the Spirit means absolutely nothing. I can get it wrong. All of us are vulnerable of that, aren't we? If we don't see ourselves as really the truly needy canines, we will never get it. You say, well, I don't want to be a dog. Then maybe you don't understand who the master is. I don't want to be a slave. That's what the Bible says. We're slaves of Christ. The problem isn't that we want to be slaves. The problem is ultimately we don't want to submit to the master. We don't know the master. By the way, to be a slave of 
King Jesus, the Master, is a glorious thing. I want to be a slave of him. Because if I'm not a slave of him, I'm a slave of the devil. You know, Christianity is so counter this world, isn't it? It's totally opposite. We're supposed to have a low view of ourselves and a high view of God. And the world says, have a high view of yourself and a low view of God. Beloved Gentiles are now a part of God's great plan. Isn't that good news? All of us now have an opportunity to go to the throne of grace and know God and be indwelt by the Spirit of God and be heirs of King Jesus, joint heirs with King Jesus. Wow! I'm an adopted child of God. That is glorious truth, isn't it? Is it because I'm something special? No, it's because he is something special. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 11. If you don't get this, you don't understand this, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable of the very thing that the Jews did. See, it was their unbelief and their pride in thinking who they were was something special that ended up being their downfall that led to the Gentiles being included. Do you understand that? Unbelief led to our opportunity to believe. Their rejection led to the Messiah's death that led to our salvation. Right? How should we view this great exchange? How should we think of this great exchange? Romans 11, Paul tells us exactly how we should think. Romans 11, verse 17. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's Israel, and you being a wild olive, that's the Gentiles, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Wow. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited. But fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of the God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Wow. Uh, Beloved, many of us in here would say we're Calvinists. Reformed, strong in our doctrines of grace. We believe that we were saved by grace through faith alone and God's unmerited favor. We all, everybody in here would, as a whole, probably say amen. And if you're not, that's, you'll get there. I'm praying that you will. <laughs> if not, there's a problem. But ultimately, if we understand the unmerited favor of God in our life, it should create the same attitude that the Canaanite woman had. We will say, I was a dog, but now I'm found. We didn't deserve to be in the root. We didn't deserve it. You say, well, Mike, this is wonderful. You've told me all about salvation. But do you understand that this applies to our life when it comes to trials and tribulations too? 
You say, how? Well, you know, I was thinking about something. They're unfortunately not here today, but the Snedekers are here. Or the Snedekers were on my heart again this week. And again, back into those healing sections. Back into those healing sections where I just kind of want to go, oh, oh, I just wish so much that they could be healed. I do. Y'all, I wish it more than anything else. I wish it. I wish it. I desire it. And I thought to myself, ow, this is so hard. Beloved, there is a day coming when they will be healed. Do you understand that Paige is that Canaanite woman? In an amazing way, she is that Canaanite woman. And she's that Canaanite woman for her whole life. To a degree, she has to endure that her whole life. You ask me, who should we be taking our understanding of God from? Who should we be seeking to know the glories of Christ? I would argue it would be those that are showing that kind of faith that this Canaanite woman did. Most of us in the room haven't suffered a lot, have we? Our faith our fi- our faith is simple to a degree. The good news is is that Christ Jesus came into the world and there is a hope. But if our hope is based completely on this world and this time, we're in trouble. We need to seek the master and beg for crumbs and be be content with whatever he gives us. In this room right now, there's probably a thousand needs, right? You probably have needs, don't you? Desires. I was thinking about this. Another thing I was thinking about this week was my dad. I love my dad dearly. I pray my dad repents and believes in Jesus. He hasn't. And I know this is really harsh because the reality is is that if this is watched by him, that would be the hardest thing for him to hear. But I'm the Canaanite woman. I'm begging God every day. God, please give my dad an understanding of you. Please deliver him. You have some? You have people that you love that you're praying for? Do you think God owes us their salvation? But the object of my faith is true. Jesus Christ loves people. And Jesus Christ could save my dad. And I'm praying for that day. I'm praying for that day. I'm a dog. (laughs) Give me a little bit of scraps. Just a little bit of crumbs, please. I know I'm not worthy of it. I know he's not worthy of it. Please. And if he said no, if he said no, I would still worship Jesus the rest of my life. Because just the reality that I know he loves me is enough. He's all satisfying. Is he all satisfying to you? I hope so. If not, there's hope in the gospel. He came into the world to die for sinners like me and you. Turn from your sin and trust him.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing passage. Thank you for loving us, Christ. Help us, Lord, to love you, serve you, honor you. We need you, God. We know we're not worthy. We know that we understand the kindness and severity of the Lord that if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell and we'd deserve it. But we also know your kindness that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. What a great God. You are a good God. Thank you. Help us, Lord, now as we go to proclaim the truth of Christ Jesus to the world. We pray this in his name. Amen.